Smartcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hold on to your butts. We are changing the course of history as we see it. That is what Wesker demands. Now this affects Iris. Um, Iris, where are you? What you feel only matters to you. I do not entertain hypotheticals. The world as it is is vexing enough. Iris, I have a tip for you. Don't take drugs! Or whatever movies with Wesley and Iris. What up? Welcome to Or Whatever Movies. I'm your co-host, Iris, and I'm here with my older brother, Wesley. And today we are discussing Sewer Snake, the scariest was... thing Iris has ever seen. I think it was planned on your part to hand me the popcorn at just the wrong time. <laughs> you handed me the giant tub of popcorn just before the snake reveal which made me jump out of my skin and spill popcorn on Kelly again Iris levitated like Reagan McNeil your entire body left the theater seat (laughs) Sewer Snake of course available in theaters currently under the title The Exorcist Believer so The Exorcist Believer started off really strong and I really credited it to David Gordon Green's direction. I thought that the acting was subtle and on point. I thought that Leslie Odom Jr. from One Night in Miami fame, our review for which is available at orwhatevermovies.com, was fantastic. And I was like all jazz because I thought, man, this is going to be good. And then it fell apart. Well, the first hour was pretty tame. And I guess the Haitian earthquake, that's real, man. And when you're striving for realism and credibility, that's a pretty good avenue to channel. Yeah, you're talking about Port-au-Prince being devastated by an earthquake not long ago. And that's the climax of the cold open where we introduce the Leslie Odom Jr. character, Victor, and his wife, the mother of Angela, who is injured when her building their hotel collapses and that poses the original impossible situation for Victor where he has to choose between his wife and his daughter his unborn daughter yeah it also establishes the unreliability of the proposer of that choice he says anything we do to save your wife will endanger the baby and I was like why is that you could also try to save the wife right 
<laughs> there was definitely some medical willful suspension of disbelief in that moment where they were like, trust us. All right, we're the medical professionals here and it's one or the other. In order to save your baby, we have to bonk your wife over the head to shoot the baby out the other end. So make your choice. <laughs> so Kelly said that Victor made the right choice. Do you agree? That would be my personal choice. And it's a terrible circumstance. It depends on how compromised the wife was going to be. She wasn't hit on the head or anything. She seemed like she would have made it, I guess. Also, did the wife not have a choice in this? You know, they wanted to, they just simply wanted to pose this impossible situation. So we weren't given a ton of details. But right. suffice it to say, the choice was left to Victor. Ostensibly, he was, a, he was a man of faith at the time. It sounded like in his conversation with his neighbor, Anne, played by Anne Dowd, that at that moment or, or shortly after, he lost his faith. Well, yeah, if you make a choice and then God, I guess, to whom you're appealing defies you, then you have a crisis of faith. I guess his wife actually dying on him after he chose her and, and having to raise the daughter could shake your faith a little bit in a realistic, justifiable kind of way. Sure. And I could also see how having your daughter be possessed by a demon could also kind of restore it. It seemed like the message of the film was love can restore and that love is in this case synonymous with an inner faith belief. But I get ahead of myself. <laughs> so when Anne's talking about how, you know, she's going to sub in for the priest and that she believes that she was meant to be outside of the church so that she didn't need to go against the church to help in this exorcism, all that stuff, I was like, I kind of buy it. But then she gets whooped by the demon. So so was that all made up or did she like do her part in successfully releasing Angela from presumably Pazuzu? Uh, well, nobody is safe. You need a village to exercise a demon from a little girl because they had all kinds of people and all of them were equally ineffectual. It was like the Scooby-Doo gang trying to defeat a ghost and they were all like <laughs> clowns in their own way. And this is where the movie really started to fall apart for me. I liked the mystery of the missing girls and I liked when they were figuring out or they were trying to figure out what it was that had happened to them and why they were acting funny and why Angela was suddenly appearing in the bathroom and all that kind of stuff was great. But the muddle in the middle really started when they were assembling this ragtag group of religious superheroes. Yeah. The pacing changed. It lost its momentum. So when the exorcism actually starts, to your point, everyone's kind of ineffective. Then the father priest comes in and he's like, <laughs> bah, 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 and they're all like, ah, you can see all this relief on their face and stuff. I was like, oh, I guess the message is Catholicism saves the day. Like here comes, you know, good old fashioned Roman Catholicism, you know, which succeeded in destroying Pazuzu in the past. And now they're coming back. And then he gets head twisted and dead. And then I was like, oh, wait, so. I think the message is Catholicism is dead. And I was all reading into it. Like the filmmakers had a lot to say about the relevancy of modern day faith. Especially when it came to Catherine's parents. So you're referencing when Catherine's dad says, I choose you, Catherine. And they're all like, ah. And that's when all hell breaks loose. Literally, what, what was the deal with this whole impossible choice number two? Okay, so going back to what you were saying about the ragtag bunch of Scooby-Doo adventurers ready to exercise this demon, our director, David Gordon Green, who's responsible for a number of horror reboots, he did all three of the new Halloweens, and he's up for at least this one, and it looks like the next Exorcist sequel 
tentatively titled Exorcist Deceiver. He talked about this film wanting to be about community and all the people who chip in, but that just made me suspicious. When the nurse, Anne, when she first spoke up and was like, I was so overjoyed when I saw your name on the thing and, you know, so happy. I was like, that's a curious line. And then we had the weird Tom Arnold neighbor who brought in the, the faith healer lady or whatever. And I was like, one of these people is the devil and is the agent in the room who's suddenly going to be like stabbing people with scissors or whatever. The only thing that really worked in terms of community that they were striving for in this movie, I thought, was what ultimately boiled down to the choice, but what started as the differences in approaches. Leslie Odom Jr., the dad, he was, you know, a non-believer and his faith was shaken. He's like, the problem with you religious people and blah, blah, blah. And the other parents, uh, Catherine's parents, were diehard Christians or church folk. And it, you know, I, I was interested to find out how those approaches would reconcile because first, like, we got to find our kids and then they're at odds and then they had to come together again. And then ultimately, who's going to make the choice and what's that choice going to be? The The ultimate choice was a The Dark Knight style choice, whereby the demon suggested that God had originally deceived Angela's dad because he chose the mom and got the daughter. And so play acted this thing when Catherine's dad chooses her unequivocally the demon flips the script and angela is the one who survives it does make sense that the demon is basically saying i may not be as powerful but i have power similar to god and if god's going to play a trick on you i'll play a trick back kind of a thing and so in that sense catherine's family they were just kind of pawns in this demon's game with victor yes I mean, we focused clearly on Victor and Angela way more than we did on Catherine and her parents, whose names I don't even know. I, I wasn't surprised at ultimately how the movie played out, you know, in Angela's favor, spoiler, but I was also kind of really surprised that they let that white girl go to hell. <laughs> yeah, and they didn't just let her go to hell. She got dragged and drowned to hell, and she was like, I don't want to go to hell. Oh, my goodness. The real horror of that man. It seemed like um, someone would have had the power to have prevented that. Like, why did the demon have the upper hand with all of these faith healers or believers, you know, surrounding these two girls in community and stuff? So that was pretty gnarly. And what Kelly had interpreted from it was that it was the dad's fault, and yet the daughter had to pay for it. It was a curious position for this movie to take that the devout family seemingly was just sort of hapless and relying on their faith. And as we know from Exorcist movies, you being now a veteran of multiple, that doesn't work. Maybe it does. Maybe it triumphs in the end, but the demon definitely put its thumb on Catherine's family in particular and was like, not you, not today. Yeah, and maybe the demon orchestrated this in such a way, you know, knowing that Catherine's dad, I mean, yes, it's an impossible decision to choose your daughter over someone else's daughter, but um, not unnatural. And also just kind of a weird message to suggest that, you know, this whole like sins of the father thing and, you know, he chooses, but you die. And that sucks. 
the choice was presented and you could see in Victor's face his hesitance to make that choice. It's almost as though he knew. And likewise, Catherine's mom didn't speak up right away. Obviously, no one wanted to condemn the other person's child to death. Presumably, that was what was going to happen or they assumed that was going to happen. Victor and the mom character were on equal footing. The dad definitely seemed like he was more of a follower. Yeah, the mom, as kind of rough as she was with Victor at the top, like when they first meet at the police station or whatever, and she's like really upset, you kind of excuse her when she's like, I didn't even know that my daughter was friends with your daughter. And if I had, believe me, this wouldn't have been the first time we meet. And I was kind of like, well, that's a little insensitive. But also, she's really upset. And it's true. You got to meet your kids, friends, parents and stuff. So I was, yeah, so I was like, all right, Catherine, I get you. This playing on the parents' fear of losing your kid, that is pretty horrifying. You know, and he's like, she doesn't have a raincoat. It wasn't that she was missing or that she might be dead. If she was out there, even if she was alive, she was probably suffering. That stuff was really affecting for me. And I can see a lot of where that comes from. It's maybe this movie's biggest strength in playing up the parents enough so that they are at least on par with Ellen Burstyn's Chris McNeil in her concern for Reagan. She wasn't a passive bystander. She was equally traumatized downstairs and and yelling and on the phone and, and crying and, and, you know, kind of hysterical. Leslie Odom Jr., not so much. He seemed pretty stiff. Either he was battle-hardened and uh, unfortunately traumatized by his past traumas, but he seemed to handle it much better than the others when his kid was gone for three days. I think he seems to handle it pretty well overall. Like, he remains pretty composed even when Angela starts doing some pretty freaky stuff. Like, the whole scene in the bathroom was messed up. And he's like, oh, that's weird. Yeah. In fact, when they start talking in the Pazuzu voice and stuff at the seance slash exorcism thing, he's still pretty composed. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Imagine if Brian went downstairs and the one of the girls wasn't in the bathtub and he found a toenail and the bathtub was all black. <laughs> no, he would freak out. Yeah. And so Victor was like, okay. And his daughter looks horrifying. And she's like, when she starts to look demonic and she's all puffy and, and like lips all jacked up, he's like, no, nah, I'm going to go on a road trip to the beach <laughs> to see this lady that I don't believe in. How far away was yeah, Chris it? Chris McNeil has a nice little movie star bungalow on the beach. Like, you know, she retired on all that book money, I guess. Yeah, I don't. He te- seems to take it all in stride. How come when they get demonic, they do get puffy? Like, they kind of get these pronounced foreheads to make their eyes look more sunken. Yeah, Catherine in particular, that hairline went back about six inches. That was pretty rough. I'm not sure also why they get cut up, if they're lacerations or if their skin just kind of splits. And it's horrifying. But is it bad that I was like, if a choice is going to be made, it's unlikely that Catherine is going to be the one that survives this because she has that upside down crucifix carved into her forehead. Like, that's probably not going to heal very well. But Angela could come out of it on the other side without any visible scarring. She's like all hands Landa and can never get away from her, like, possessed past. <laughs> man, that's a deep connection, man. <laughs> but to your point, I think they have to lay the prosthetics on their cheeks and foreheads, which gives them a puffed up appearance so they can cut their skin all up and make them look horrifying. 
But I really thought that Chris McNeil would play a larger role in this. She's front and center in the trailer. And then he goes and visits her at the beach and they have not even a creepy conversation, kind of more of a sad conversation. Yep. And then she shows up. I'm not sure that she or Victor know exactly what she's there to do. I mean, she's not going to perform the exorcism herself. <laughs> she's going to try. I, I guess so. But then that goes badly. I think it's safe to say. I mean, look, Ellen Burstyn is what drew me in. I was telling Kelly Ray, there are now five Exorcist movies in the canon of this actual original Exorcist universe based on The Exorcist 1973. Countless exorcism type movies and ripoffs in the 50 years since the original Exorcist. I think they kind of needed Ellen Burstyn to draw me in. Not even Linda Blair would have done it for me. And so I was like, oh, okay. And they got me on board. And then I was thinking the whole time for the first hour of this movie, I get that we can take our time setting it up and it's a nice little family drama and the horror of losing your kid. But this movie has to put it in drive and hit the gas. This movie has to go. What are you going to do? How are you pot? Oh, there it is. When Chris McNeil gets horribly assaulted. In this movie. And I was like, there it is. Now we're going. I guess they're not going to hold anything back. I like how you were relieved. You're like, now we're getting started. <laughs> right? When that happened, I think maybe she should have died Han Solo style. Major spoiler. But she didn't. And okay. You, it wasn't satisfying to end, to cap it all off with uh, the reappearance of Linda Blair? Not at all. Look. All things considered, yes, it worked. It was effective for really getting this movie into gear and for getting my butt in the theater seat in the first place. But I do think that the Chris McNeil character was poorly used, was a waste. She yeah. showed up, you know, to get a little bit of FaceTime so they can justifiably put her in the trailer. And then she was out of commission. It's, she was like, I guess, vaguely connected to the events, Stranger Things style, where she's like tossing and turning in the bed while the exorcism is happening. But she played no further role. And creating the ending of Reagan coming back softened the whole thing and made it as a horror movie, I think, kind of ineffective. This is an exorcist reunion. It's supposed to push the envelope and make it horrifying. And I don't think that that's what happened. Yeah, they banked a lot on the cachet of the Linda Blair and Ellen Burson reunion, but it wasn't really earned. And you're right, the Chris McNeil character spends more time in bed with the weird bug eye patches than she did like being an active character. Like if she, if she was so ill prepared to go in and perform the sexism herself, like, you know, what was she doing? Was it just a death wish because she had given up hope on being reunited with Reagan? Or maybe she believed in some small part of her heart that Reagan was actually in hell. But really, Anne is kind of, to me, the most interesting character and the only character who really had a backstory in the interfaith community of believers that surrounded these girls. Yeah, that's how we established the legitimacy of the possession. The daughter could have had no way of knowing what her proposed nun name was going to be or the name of her daughter or the fact that she had an abortion. All very important stuff. I think she was, I agree, she was an interesting character. She wasn't terribly well set up. When she started talking, I was like, who are you? You're the nurse? But then she played a much bigger role. Well, she was the neighbor and the nurse. Remember, she's the neighbor at the top who's like, bring in your trash cans. Yeah, uh, for a nurse, she was as ineffective as an exorcist as she was at when the girls flatlined at once that, like, administering CPR, what took her so long? 
I was like, okay, now you start CPR, right? Okay, ready? CPR, nurse? And then finally she did it. And I was like, it's about time. Dude, are you going to wrap your lips around that thing? Uh, <laughs> that's fair, but you can do compressions. They don't even do the mouth thing anymore. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. She could have done Father Karras style CPR, which is just hammering Max von Sydow on the chest as hard as he could. <laughs> and she had the defib there, too. It took her a while to get that gel on. Oh, man. Uh, yeah, she was interesting, a kind of a surprising character. You know, she gets the, the priest involved, and at the end, she gets the whole ending monologue. Man, this made me appreciate even more how immersive the original Exorcist is. And it seems like I keep playing that up. Like, how scary could it really be? Yeah, actually revisit The Exorcist. That movie is freaky. This one, not so much. They both had demonic voices. They couldn't make it exactly like The Exorcist, uh, mostly because the incredible Mercedes McCambridge is long gone. But they occasionally they would lapse into their little girl voices. And if you watch the YouTube clips of Reagan talking in her Linda Blair voice before they overdubbed her dialogue, it is not scary. And there are some <laughs> of the times when these girls were not scary. That was the only truly scary few minutes of the film. Yeah, I got a couple of jump scares, but that was the only time where I was really holding on to Kelly. It's when... It's when Angela fully headbutts Victor, and then they both start levitating toward the parlor light or whatever. Did you know that the demon has a name? You mean Pazuzu? Yeah, it wasn't Pazuzu, despite Chris saying we've met before, not Pazuzu. Oh. Hang on. What was it? it? It's not a joke. I'm being serious. I was about to say, you're totally setting me up. No. Oh, so it's cred number one. Linda Blair is top build on IMDb. Boy, am I glad knowing that I was going to see this movie, I didn't look up anything about it. Because while I feel it was kind of an ineffectual cameo, it was a halfway decent surprise. But in the credits, the demon is named as Lamashtu. Lamashtu? Yeah, Lamashtu in particular preys on pregnant women. And then this demon's apparently in, in the mythology, Mesopotamian mythology, Pazuzu is the arch enemy of Lamashtu. And you can evoke Pazuzu to protect against this demon. Now, the better side of Pazuzu was not demonstrated in The Exorcist, but apparently we're meant to believe that Lamashtu is way worse. And was Lamashtu in both of the girls? Uh, yes, I think it was a single entity bouncing back and forth. It had them both in one in each hand, kind of, and, and was communicating either together with their heartbeats are in unison and they're speaking in unison, or it was channeling through one and one or the other at different times. And Lamashtu came to them through whatever the ceremony it was that the girls were doing in the woods, just like Pazuzu came to Reagan through the Ouija? Right. And Captain Howdy? Yes, whatever they were doing down there. I mean, do girls do rituals anymore? If if they, they get together and have a sleepover and they're like, we're going to do some witchy shit, do they play with Ouija boards or do they w just watch like scary TikTok videos or something? I mean, I don't know. Maybe it's a new generation and all, but it feels like all of the things I did, Paloma starts bringing up like the fortune tellers that played a role in this, like... You did Light as a Feather and Stiff as a Board. You did Bloody Mary in the Mirror, right? No. You didn't do those things. No, we were making Drano bombs and destroying public property and stuff. Okay. Drano bombs. Yeah, and we were trespassing at the Vanderlip Mansion trying to see actual ghosts. Yeah, it's spooky up there. 
Um, I'm not sure if the message that this movie is putting forth, I'm not sure you have a correct assessment on that. Really? Seems like the moral to me is, hey, kids, don't be kids. Don't do awesome kid stuff like evil rituals or exploring sewers because the devil might come for you. I don't know. I don't. Kids don't do bad ritual things. That's that's not. It only makes kids want to do it more. Right. The ultimate message is love and interfaith community and hope. As long as you have those things, then the devil can't do its work. When it comes to community and things like that, here, the girls were known. They were missing. There was community outreach and stuff. All the neighbors got involved. There wouldn't have been like a social media thing. Nobody would have been following the case or whatever. And, and hey, they were found. Yay. And, and like the word spreads far and wide. But also, hey, there's something wrong and their toenails are coming off. There wouldn't have been like a modern media component. I expected there to be much more of that. Yeah, and also if you're going to assemble the super team and bring the nurse and the all the different faith leaders and the neighbor and all that, like, don't you just also bring a cop? Like, why call the cops later? Right. Like, maybe, maybe just have them on standby? Have a little backup? Dude, people died. So the demon is looking for its foothold and they're trying to, to cast it out from all angles the whole time, right? Is the demon going to be able to hang on? But why did they empower the demon to offer them a choice. Was it a foothold that they felt that they could grasp? The demon is like, you know, nah, Reagan's in here with us and stuff, and she's in hell, and, and your daughters are going to hell. And then they were like, no, <laughs> don't believe it. We cast you out in the name of God. And the thing's like, a choice. And they're like, okay, we'll play a game. Like, why would it <laughs> give the demon, Lamashtu, the power to exercise discrepancy on a choice that they would make. I'm not sure that was my issue. It's like, why are you empowering it? Kelly Ray's real issue was that the rules were wonky. If Lamashtu could break the priest's neck telekinetically, then it could kill everyone. Why wouldn't it kill everyone? Which boils down to my ultimate question, which I am posing to you. What is the demon's goal in possessing the kids? Hmm. Well, Lamashtu, Pazuzu, what have you, what goals do they have beyond wreaking havoc on people of faith? <laughs> like, it seems like they just kind of want to mess with you. So Lamashtu, it seemed like had something out for poor Victor. And maybe it was like the bravado of the protection that was given to Angela when she was still in utero. Like she was, he was thwarted and trying, looking for revenge. Yeah. And basically like, yeah, what, you know, it's like, a, I take that as a challenge kind of a thing. And I guess if you want to really think about, think more deeply about what Anne, the ex-nun nurse had to say, you know, they want to obliterate hope. And when they do, they win. And you don't live a life, you live a life that is hopeless. It seemed like they wanted, he wanted to mess with them. I completely agree with what Kelly says about rule breaking and what you say about the choice. Like to give the demon that power is to really play into his, his whole scheme. Like you just say, no, actually, you don't have a choice. The rules were so slippery that as easily as the demon could have killed everybody there, they could have, you know, brought in an, a whole army to fight this demon. And they don't. And I think that's why it feels kind of unsatisfying. Yeah, it's a little bit of a muddy movie. 
that plays with what I consider to be pretty clearly defined rules based on the original movie. But the sequels are coming hell or high water. Emphasis on the hell. <laughs> and that's our discussion on Exorcist Believer, this week's primary episode and companion episode to the original Exorcist from 19, what was it, 73? 73, 50 years. And your final rating is? I was a little bit on the fence. I was prepared, to, I was hopeful, but prepared to be profoundly disappointed. It wasn't profound. I was disappointed just because I don't think anything can stack up. They did a thing. It was a fine, it was a, a barely passable thing. I'm going to give it an all right rating, but if I'm held to that, you know, I may, uh, I may qualify it. Huh. I think what you were going to say was that it wasn't bad, but it wasn't good. I don't. I didn't have contempt for it. I just my only contempt would have been trying to measure up to the original. So I'll go for a wasn't good. Check out three hundred other reviews at orwhatevermovies.com, including our other episodes in Halloween twenty twenty three or whatevermovies.com, wherever you get podcasts. If you want to reach out to us, 818-835-0473 or whatevermovies at gmail.com. Thank you for listening and happy Halloween. Today is working for me. Do you believe that for yourself? Hey, I'm Pastor Julie, and I want to empower you through encouragement, inviting you to my podcast, Big Truth Encouragement, where I unpack living a faith-filled life. I created my podcast for the ladies, but gentlemen, you'll gain something too. So I invite you to listen to Big Truth Encouragement on Electricast and any platform where you listen to your podcast. Electricast. Hey guys, it's Miriam Love here, and I want to share something very special with you. Check out my new release, All In, the Spanish remixes, out now on Electric House Records. And always remember, be love, share love, all love. Available now wherever you listen to music.